Hi, and welcome to Madness to Magic and my podcast, I'm with Crazy, a love story. I'm your host, Paulina Milana, author of The S Word. This show is for those of us who find ourselves surrounded by madness and wanting to find the magic within. We're going to come together here as caregivers to those who have been diagnosed with a mental illness. Maybe it's someone in the family we've been born into. Maybe it's someone we love. Maybe it's someone we work with. Maybe even it's ourselves. Whether we've been thrust into this caregiver role or taken it on by choice, this podcast is where we're going to share our stories and learn to realize the magic in all the madness we may have been experiencing. I promise you, it can be done. So let's get to it. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Today's podcast is one I'm feeling compelled to do. I hadn't planned on doing a podcast on this particular topic, that of sexual predators and sex abuse. And for some of you, you may wonder what this has to do with mental illness and caregiving. And to that, I'll give a simple answer. A lot. I hope you'll stick with me as I explain what's on my mind and in my heart right now having just watched, for the second time, the HBO documentary, Leaving Neverland. I'm not sure if you listeners have seen it, but if you have or if you plan to, I can promise it will change your perspective on so many things. The reason I'm talking about it today is because secrets suffocate. That's in part what Leaving Neverland revealed, and it's what my book, The S-Word, is about. The S-Word is a memoir about secrets. But the reason I called my book The S-Word is because of everything involved in keeping those secrets. And it just so happened in the writing of the book that I realized that so much of what my story was about included words that begin with the letter S. So yes, it's about schizophrenia. And yes, it's about growing up Sicilian. And yes, it's about shame and stigma and seduction and sex. Watching Leaving Neverland brought back for me the very same swirl of emotions that I experienced and made me realize that A, I wasn't alone B, what I went through isn't exclusive to culture or gender or status. C, that the people involved, everyone involved, has both good and bad in them, both predator and prey. And it can be at the same time. D, that what I had gone through and felt and still feel today is normal and that it's not over. Maybe it'll never be over. And then finally, that it wasn't my fault. Now, I'm sure you're wondering what it is. If you've read my book, you might have a sense of what I'm referring to. If not, let me set the stage. So my family was struggling when I was growing up. My mom's undiagnosed mental illness was taking its toll, physically, emotionally, financially, on all of us. We kept it all a secret. What happened in the family stayed in the family. Sicilians call it Cosa Nostra. 
but we took it to the extremes. I was 13 years old when I forged my birth certificate to get a job at the local donut store. The year was 1978. The internet didn't exist. No social media, no cell phones. Actually, at the donut shop where I worked, we didn't even have a phone. I mean, we did. There was a push-button phone on the wall, but the owners had disabled it so that you couldn't call out. So it really wasn't much of a phone at all, unless you were clever enough to know how to make it work another way. And if there's one thing that I have been, that I pride myself at being, it's clever. People have said uh, that I'm resourceful. But I'm clever and resourceful because I learned throughout my life how to be in order to survive, no matter what. So when I was working at that donut shop late one Friday night, all alone, with just the radio to keep me company, I retreated into a world of my own where it was safe to sing out loud and dance and just be me. At the time, I remember singing and dancing to songs like I Want to Kiss You All Over and Hot Child in the City. I was a teenager becoming more and more sexually aware I thought about the cute boys in my class, as well as the hot dads, whose kids I babysat, the sexy teachers, and even our young priest, about whom I fantasized when I went to church. It was my time to be age-appropriate and not have to think about caregiving or the madness that awaited me when I got home. All the more ironic, then, for mental illness to come find me during that fateful Friday night. I remember I was singing and dancing to an all-time favorite band, Styx. Uh, they had just come out, I think, with Grand Illusion. Styx was the first live concert I ever went to. My brother, Rosario, and my older sister actually took me to see them at the Rosemont Horizon for my 12th birthday. We sat on the main floor in folding chairs, and I got to stand on that chair and sing as loud as I wanted to and shake my behind and just go crazy. All the things my mother wouldn't have approved of. She had thought that I was uh, sexually promiscuous and who knows what else. I think that's why I loved the band Sticks so much. That concert was my very first and was very the, uh, one of the few times in my life up until that point when I could enjoy being a normal, or at least what I thought normal was. That's why I think I made sure always to sing out loud whenever a sticks tune came on. And that's exactly what I was doing when I was all alone at that donut shop at the age of 13. That song came on the radio and I was belting out my best version of Styx's uh, Fooling Yourself. And there's this whole part, you know, blow, 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 blow. And then I just remember at the top of my lungs, I'm singing that, and I turn around, and there's a guy who enters in. And this man came out of nowhere. There's no car in the parking lot, no headlights, uh, in the in the glass windows that would signal a, a patron arriving. 
I don't even remember, you know, the, the door to the um, donut shop had these little kind of uh, tinkling bells um, attached to it. So every time you'd open it up, they would kind of tinkle, you know, sort of like the It's a Wonderful Life, um, Clarence, you know, the bells, angels, um, every time a bell rings, that kind of thing. That's always what I would think of when I would hear them. But this time there was nothing. Didn't hear a thing. Maybe I missed it because I was singing in, in my own world. All I know is that I simply turned around and he was there. He was pacing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth the entire length of the shop. Only his pacing was more a shuffle. And the only thing between me and the man was the counter. I remember for a moment I was completely paralyzed. I was... Fear just completely took me over. And at that moment, that man stopped and he turned and he faced me. And we just stared at each other. I, he was just like a blank, blank face. He was older, older than <clears throat> my papa. So we're talking, I don't know, at that point, I don't even know if, 50, 60, somewhere around there, older than 60, I'd say. Maybe a little younger. He was fatter, um, pretty rotund. He was taller. He was a big guy. Um, definitely a good six inches at least taller than I was. And it's possible, maybe, you know, that I saw him as so big because I was so very alone and small um, then. I remember his hair was wispy. <clears throat> it was like um, standing straight up, permanent state of attention. Uh, like Every strand, though, was <laughs> saluting its own captain, going this way and that. It was, you know, already gray, <coughs> excuse me, kind of matched <clears throat> what I remember his T-shirt was. Um, it was maybe, maybe used to be white, but it was gray. It was stained with remnants of meals from days gone by, maybe. He sported these um, pajama bottoms, and they were nearly worn through. They were kind of like faded blue stripes, and I remember on his feet, he had these like tattered brown slippers. Um, very bizarre, since outside it was slushy gray snow that was still on the ground. It was cold um, winter uh, when he came through. He reminded me of a used wash rag. Um, even his pajama bottoms were all wet, soaked through from having walked, I'm assuming, through the snow. I had <clears throat> found my voice and stammered out, Can I help you? And that started him shuffling, pacing back and forth again. It was then that I noticed his wristband. He had a hospital wristband. And immediately, I thought to myself, I, I, I know what I'm looking at here. I was still very much afraid, but a strange sense of um, comfort almost came over me. I thought, I've been here before with my mom, I, and I knew what I needed to do. I needed to get help. Now, as I told you earlier, the phone had been disabled in the place, but I knew, clever me, I knew how to make it work. So um, I dialed 911, 
by depressing the switch hook. And that's that part of the phone, for those of you who only use cell phones, the part of the uh, phone where the headpiece um, sits on it. That's how you hang up a phone, a traditional phone. And if you click that um, very fast, according to the um, the number you're trying to dial. So if you're dialing nine, you click it nine times really fast, then one, then one, the call will go through. And that's exactly what I did. And it did. It went through. And moments later, two officers show up and they introduce themselves. Now I'm changing the names um, and this full story and how it unfolds is part of my uh, book, The S Word. But the two guys, there was Officer James Brown and Officer Tim Gunner. And they were both kind of the same age. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I realized it right at the moment that I saw them, but they were late 30s, early 40s. Officer Brown was um, black, African-American, and his uniform showed off every muscle. Officer Gunner was taller. He was much more slender, equally muscular, um, and he had like strawberry blonde hair, the bluest of eyes. He had this Cheshire cat-like smile. And he had a swagger of kind of, you know, I've been around the block and I carry a gun. He he reminded me um, of Clint Eastwood. And I loved Clint Eastwood. My papa and I would regularly sit up late nights to watch his movies, um, especially the westerns. The Man with No Name, that was papa's favorite. I My favorite was The Outlaw Josie Wales. But, um, but this guy just, boom, uh, made me think of Clint Eastwood. And I watched as the two officers kind of took charge. They asked me about the donut shop owner, how to get a hold of him. I had no clue. Soon after, Officer Brown, he was kind of um, tending to the, to the guy who had come in uh, with the hospital bracelet. And they had called for an ambulance, I think. And I saw Officer Gunner brush some hair off his shirt sleeve, and he put his hand over the receiver. I think he was talking. I don't even know who he was talking to, but I remember him talking, putting his hand over the receiver, turning to me, and he whispered that he was single, had a couple of cats. I nodded. I liked cats, too. It was just a, I don't know, silly thing that I remember. And Gunner and Brown, they were asking the man questions. They weren't getting any answers. <clears throat> they put handcuffs on him. The man never said a word. He just kind of kept rocking back and forth. After a while, the ambulance came, took him away. Officer Brown went with, but Officer Gunner stayed behind. And honestly, I never gave another thought to Officer Brown or to the man who was taken away my thoughts were instantly consumed with Officer Gunner, who for the first of what would be many times over the course of a year, sat himself down on the first pink stool in front of the curved white counter and ordered a coffee, black with two sugars. And he ordered a strawberry iced raised donut. I remember thinking to myself, this was funny. And I, I remember laughing. He had asked why it was so funny. I 
just said nothing and asked if it was to go. I think the reason I found it so funny was here was this, you know, big kind of cop and he's having the same donut that like a little kid would, um, would order, right? The ones that like the parents picked out the dozen donuts after church and that's what they wanted. You know, the, the, the donuts that were strawberry iced or sprinkled or, you know, the kid donuts. So anyway, hindsight, had I been paying attention, I might have connected the dots, um, but didn't. When I asked him if he wanted it to go, I remember he said, no, I think I'll have it here with you. And there was a deliberateness to his, to his responses. I served him the donut on a plate and, uh, and I remember because like nobody kind of really came in, the coffee had been on for a long time. So I said, you know, I'll make a fresh pot. I had was like pulling the, the basket out of the coffee maker and I, I casually kind of turned, you know, to him and said, you know, if you want, I mean, because then I'm thinking, wait, you know, maybe he's fine with this coffee. He's, he's a cop. I got to assume that he drinks, you know, old coffee all the time. And so I said, you know, if you want officer Gunner. And I remember he paused and gave me this look that, whoa, just unsettled me. And he said, you know, two simple words, I want and they're innocent words, right? I want, I want, I want. But that whole look and and the tone, it made me turn away and blush. And so I kept my back to him while I was brewing the fresh coffee. And <clears throat> he said to me, hey, you know, it's, it's just Gunner. You can call me Gunner. What's your name? And I answered him. I don't even think I turned around. I just said, well, my name's Paulina. People call me Paula because it's easier, which all of that's true. And he came back and said, Well, Paulina, and he emphasized uh, the, the pronunciation of my word, Paulina, this is the best donut ever created. Mm-mm-mm, so good. And he like exaggerated um, how I was eating it. I mean, if I had to pick one word, it'd be he devoured that donut. And he said, you know, strawberries were his favorite. He was like exaggerating, like licking his fingers clean. It was um, licking his lips. I just, it was, um, I know it sounds, it sounds odd, but the, that visual, just all of it, just the whole first time um, meeting him just sticks in my mind. So anyway, lots of thoughts, feelings raging through me. Um, the best way to describe it, I was unnerved. I, I've used the word jumblies um, before. You know, when I was a kid, I, I used to say, you know, he gives me the jumblies. Um, for Officer Gunner, it was that and then some. Um, so I quickly grabbed an empty coffee cup. I put it under the flowing stream of coffee. I'm not even waiting for, like, it to be totally done. I give him the sugar, the spoon, everything that, you know, you're supposed to do. And then I step back and I realized I was like stepping back as far as I could. Um, there was a refrigerator there and not necessarily sure why, but every part of me, as much as I was 
you know, forcing myself back, every part of me wanted to cross the counter. Um, that I remember. And I, I said something, you know, really kind of what I thought was professionally, um, adult. I was kind of like, you know, well, if you, if you like strawberry donuts, we've got strawberry jelly filled donuts. Um, I just, you know, said some stupid stuff. He laughed, he drank. Um, and then he started asking questions about if I was here by myself, um, late at night, always. He said, you know, other kind of questions about my schedule. Um, and I, I answered and, you know, nothing, nothing totally unusual. I, I remember though, at that point, um, you know, pretty quickly I saw over his, uh, shoulder, um, a car headlights. Uh, it happened to be my papa. He would come and get me, um, at the end of the night. Uh, he would signal, signal my dad, um, three times, like flashing the lights so that I knew that he was there, um, and that it was him. So I kind of pointed out the window and said, oh, that's my father. Um, you know, usually he sits with me, um, but, you know, lately he hasn't been able to, that kind of conversation. So my dad comes in, um, and I just kind of, I, I remember like just being really nervous and like, blabbering and I don't remember what else other than the feelings and my dad comes in and usually he sat in the very same seat that you know Gunner was now um occupying my dad didn't think anything of it sat in the one right next to him leaned over gave me a kiss my dad always would say how's my baby girl um and I I loved that honestly um to feel like I was you know cared for by somebody, you know, his, his child, his baby girl, sort of like the George Bailey, uh, it's wonderful life Zuzu, you know? Um, I just, I always felt safe. And on this night with him coming in and saying that as much as I know I was a little bit embarrassed, um, because of officer Gunner, I also, um, really needed to hear that. And I think, I think, maybe needed him to hear that. Um, so anyway, so I introduce my father to Officer Gunner, and uh, Gunner extends his hand, and he says again, you know, nice to meet Paulina's father. And he said something about, you have a very adult daughter, is going into kind of a little bit of what had happened. Um, my dad, you know, English was not his first language, so he really didn't, understand a lot of the conversation didn't understand you know adult what is he saying kind of thing um just a big question mark on my dad's um head or face and uh and my father I remember in, in his broken English he thanked him you know thank you official he called uh, officers officials um and he said uh, something like, you know, I know she's so smart. Uh, and then he was kind of like going into his apologies, why he couldn't be there. Um, and, you know, his own, you know, work, the family, etc. And And Gunnar said to him, you know, what's your name? My father told him, I'm Antonino Tony. And he said, okay, call me Tim. I mean, 
just a back and forth kind of um, the adults talking. And uh, <clears throat> he said, you know, that if he wanted, if my father wanted, um, he could drive by there um, every night. He could stop in, keep an eye out on our girl. I know he called me that, on our girl here um, every night. And, uh, and you know, then he was kind of like turning to me and saying, and you can start to teach me how to speak Italian because during the conversation I had said some things to my father to translate in Italian. And, um, and my dad, again, was like, what is he talking about? Because um, he was kind of talking fast. And I, I was thankful that my dad kind of didn't know English as much as I was um, wishing that he was a little more um, on top of it, you know. So anyway, at the end of the day, really when I think back on it, it was that moment when, uh, when Gunnar offers to come and keep an eye out on our girl and uh, stay with me in place of my dad. And my dad is so grateful for it um, because here, you know, here's a police officer, an authority figure um, who... Who you know you trust will uh, will do the right thing and protect right. Um, and so my father said yes, yes. You know, please. You know, if you could come stay with her. So you know, hindsight twenty twenty, that pretty much was official permission for Gunner to keep his eyes on me. Um, and again, I'm you know I'm I'm I know I'm thirteen at this point. Um, Turns out Gunner was 39 at this point. <clears throat> and uh, at that point, it, it, it excited me as much as it kind of scared me. I, I remember thinking to myself, um, okay, you know, I'm damsel in distress. You know, the, the girl with the heart of gold, she can take care of herself. She can fight back all foes. But sometimes, you know, you get in a little bit over your head and you need Gunner to swoop in and and rescue, you know, in my mind, like in my 13 year old mind, all of this kind of fantasy going on, um, in part because one of my favorite, favorite movies, even to this day is the very first Rocky movie. And if you remember, um, there's a scene, uh, where Rocky and Adrian are alone, you know, remember she's a shy kind of, um, a plain spinster kind of person and they're alone in, uh, his apartment and he corners her he's wearing just his wife beater undershirt he raises his arms hangs them from whatever it was a pipe from the ceiling and his entire being is like threatening to swallow her up and she's kind of backing up and he says I want to kiss you uh you don't have to kiss me back if you don't feel like it but you know that's when their first you know, uh, sexual encounter, um, happens. And I remember, I know I was only, uh, what, 11, I think when I saw the first Rocky, but when I saw it, I, I wanted to feel what Adrian felt. Um, and here with Gunner, I was feeling those same feelings. Um, I had never before really felt something like this for a grown up man, um, and, and never felt it like, uh, the first time I felt something like that was Rocky, right? So Rocky watching him 
that whole kind of Adrian being taken, quote unquote, um, and how she was completely changed afterward, right? So afterward, she has new hair, new clothes, new attitude. Everything's changed for the better. And and in the, watching the movie, so too was I. And then, you know, I just fantasy land. Um, I thought that being taken and being better is always kind of how it worked. Um, but again, that's fantasy. And I didn't know any better at that age. So anyway... Um, you know, Gunner being 39, he should have known. And uh, so anyhow, for months after that, Gunner would come sit with me at the donut shop. It was just him and I alone for hours talking. And he felt super safe, um, super, you know, we were on par, um, friends, uh uh, confidants and um and at the same time he felt super dangerous <clears throat> so one night I'd been in the back room and I don't know I was doing something I I remember hearing those angel bell angel bells um on the door uh ringing announcing somebody's arrival and I had barely crossed the threshold from like the back room to the front uh room where people come in and suddenly I stopped because there was Gunner. And the difference here was Gunner was just standing there and not not sitting on his usual pink stool at the counter, not even waiting on the other side of like the counter, right, where people come in and sit. He had crossed the threshold <clears throat> to where, um, you know, to where the cash register is, where the coffee maker is, where the where the low boy like glass case with the donuts are and he was he was just standing there behind the front counter just inches from me on on my side of the counter and i remember thinking immediately wow you crossed you crossed a line that you that's a line you never crossed before and he said do me a favor would you and that's how it all started that's how our relationship kind of um, crossed over a line. So I remember he wasn't even really looking at me. He was so like nonchalant about it. Um, and and all those warning voices in my head, like, hey, there's something wrong with this or, or you know, <clears throat> I don't know, danger Will Robinson kind of thing. I think because he was so flippant, so nonchalant, like it was no big deal, I just thought to myself, you know what, this is your your silly 13-year-old fantasy <clears throat> brain kind of going off. This is nothing. This is normal. You're just not normal. So then as I was watching, Gunner started pulling lengths of um, scotch tape from the dispenser. So we had, you know, a scotch tape kind of dispenser. Um, it's the one that kind of you just pull the tape when you box up the donuts and it seals it. And... He was just kind of acting like he belonged there. He was in my space where I worked, uninvited. He, I remember he even grabbed like one of the strawberry ice donuts that he loved so much with his hand from the display rack. He was stuffing it into his mouth with one hand, like pretty much swallowing it whole, like, again, like oh, exaggerating, like it was all kind of fun and games. And excuse me, while I, while I 
didn't know exactly what to say. I did know that he was somewhere where he didn't belong at that moment. So he took those long strips of tape. Each one, he like pulled it out like a foot long. And he started lining them up against the uh, top edge of the glass counter. And they were just like dangling, like the, you know, like the streamers, the hang off, uh, the olden day handlebars of a bicycle, right? Um, at least they used to do that when I was little. Um, and he just kept pulling those long strips of tape and, and like lining them up on the counter. And I pretty much just watched, kind of mesmerized, paralyzed, not quite sure, um, just not quite sure uh, of what was going on. And he walked himself backward, continuing to make himself at home, uh, actually pulled out a mug, um, poured himself a cup of coffee. Um, he comes back, and I, I think he, like, put some sugar in it. Like, just, again, just as if it was it was a normal kind of thing. Um, and then he he returned to his task at hand with the tape, and he didn't ask. He just reached out to me. He took both my hands in his. He lifted my arms, <clears throat> bending them at the elbows, and positioned my hands in front of his chest, as if, almost as if, um, like he'd be placing handcuffs around my wrists. And with one of his hands holding one outstretched of mine, he took those long strips of tape, sticky side up, and he began wrapping them over and over my hands from the tips of my fingers to the base of my palms. So he didn't give me a chance to ask what he was doing, but the look on my face must have been clear enough to ask the question. And he said, I need your help in getting rid of the evidence. That's what he said, he was smiling he was kind of puffing up his chest when he said it, and that's what he called it, the evidence. Now, I knew that Gunner had cats. He had told me um, our first like meeting, pretty much. And even if he hadn't told me, I do remember the number of times he would come into the shop. He had, like, cat hair <clears throat> visible on his uniform. And, you know, anybody who was paying attention knew that he had cat hair that covered him. So again, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I guess whatever's going on here is legit. <clears throat> so I relaxed a little and, uh, Gunner said something like <clears throat> he just needed a friend to help him brush off all the hair. He didn't notice how bad it was until he got in there under the lights. Actually, he may not have even said that. I think, I think, honestly, that's what I was kind of justifying in my head. But um, but anyway, he pulled me up by my waist, a little closer to him. And both my hands now were fully wrapped um, in the tape, like mummies, uh, sticky side up. <clears throat> and uh, I just remember thinking, you know, I should say something like, you know, <clears throat> the cat's got my tongue, or which is sounding stupid right now, but... I just remember thinking, like, why can't I say something? Um, anyway, 
So <coughs> Gunnar placed my taped up hands palm side down onto his chest. And his hands were guiding mine, and he began to use me to stroke him. Now, it was the first time I had ever had my hands on a guy's chest, let alone anywhere else. Not even my papa or my brother had I ever touched anywhere near like this. And it was the first time I had really even touched Gunner anywhere, other than maybe his arm or something, like even accidentally, right? Handing a cup of coffee or something. Um, now, he had always given me <clears throat> the jumblies, and this, this again, took it to a whole different level. And, uh, and I remember him looking at me and just continuing to, like, stroke his body with my hands. And he said... This is what happens when you love your cats. And then, you know, it dawns on me that the tape covering my hands is pulling up the fur, right? And um, and so again, there's that teeny bit of, okay, all right, I get it. Um, this is normal. And then he said, uh, <clears throat> thank you for helping me with my pussy problem. Now, to be honest, <clears throat> I have no clue if back then... I knew what that word meant. Maybe I did. I I really don't know. Whether I did or didn't, I I can't even be certain that it would have mattered. Um, not for any other reason than I, I'm not sure, honestly, that I was kind of putting two to two, two and two together, um, and just equating all of this with me or or what it. Or, or the dance we were dancing, or, um, or I don't know. I really, honestly, you know, looking back, I don't, I don't know. Um, so anyway, Gunner restrung the tape. He rewrapped my hands. He pressed them and dragged them all over his chest, his arms, his thighs, <clears throat> his back, his buttocks, um, and I just let him. I, you know, he kept, he kept, you know, once the tapes got full of cat hair, he just kept re, reapplying. And I just kept, you know, following his lead and stroking him all over, right there, right there in the donut shop. So my hands were at his mercy. So was my mind, obviously. Um, and Honestly, he taught me how to stroke nearly every inch of his entire body under the guise of ridding him of cat hair. Clever. <clears throat> and honestly, it, I don't even think it lasted that long. <clears throat> Just long enough to do the job. <clears throat> long enough to, to actually plant seeds of seduction, desire, and, um, and doubt. Um, you know, <clears throat> kind of making this seem normal, but... Maybe it wasn't, and then doubting that I thought that it wasn't normal. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> all that said, honestly, I was super excited over all of it. Um, I do remember my hands pressing against him, the feel of his muscles, um, what I was actually touching. I, I remember all of that. Um, I knew, too, that 
you know, physically for me, without me being touched, there were things going on in my own body. Um, and, you know, I, I, I could feel myself <clears throat> just kind of being swept up and totally out of control and having no clue what I was doing, but um, in so many ways, like, on board uh, with it. So as the time went on and this game of sexual innuendo, flirting got more and more tangled up with this image of him as my protector, my friend, another father figure, um, as all of that just kind of like swirled and got meshed up um, together, I just, I felt more and more uneasy. Um, it was just weird. And even when Gunnar would come in and like flirt with others, there was this whole pang of, um, <clears throat> of jealousy <coughs> that came into it. So anyway, Gunnar's 40th birthday was coming up excuse me, and the more he talked about it um, and the more he went on and on about what he wanted for his birthday, uh, he would say, I'm, I'm looking for something special, you know, um, for days leading up. I want something special. And the more he said that, the more kind of the fear started to take hold. Um, now, <laughs> joke of jokes, we have, or we had, a donut <clears throat> that we would call the uh, Today's Special. And, you know, as much as you want to think, okay, maybe he's talking about a donut, I, he's not, right? So I thought to myself, I need to, I need to be smart here and have a plan. So, like I said, I was, you know, clever. Um, and I remembered Gunnar just telling me how much he loved Fleetwood Mac. And so I thought, okay, Fleetwood Mac had just come out with, um, an album called Tusk. And I thought, all right, I, I have, you know, I can afford that. I'll buy that. Um, and then as the kind of funny, you know, something special, I thought I would give him that with a today's special donut with a candle, ta-da, you know, done. And then I went, um, to like a card shop and I was kind of like, I need a card that, you know, says happy birthday, and is, you know, platonic, like, you know, brings everything back to, um, to earth, to be honest. And divine inspiration, uh, I find this card and on the front, it had this big, fat, sugary, jelly filled donut. And the words on the front said, <clears throat> turning 40 is like a jelly donut. And then <clears throat> you open it and the jelly donut has been, uh, it's got a bite taken out of it and it's oozing with jelly now and there's crumbs all around and the inside of the card says, <coughs> the best part is in the middle. And I thought, excellent. This is how to turn this from maybe a not so normal scenario that's, that's going on to something very, very normal. So I thought, here's a message from God, right? I'm not going to be abandoned. He's with me. This is going to go fine. I'm just going to give him the gift. Here's your something special, and we're done with it. <coughs> I have a tickle in my throat. So I remember that 
he was coming in for his birthday and uh, I thought everything's going to be fine. You know, I'll even sing him happy birthday. And I'm not sure if I really believed everything was going to be fine. But anyway, he comes in that night. He <clears throat> immediately steps behind the counter. And again, we're alone. And this time I was really afraid. Um, just really afraid. And he, he did, again, what he had come to do, pulling the tape from the dispenser. You know, his smile, his his line as he would tape my hands up, um, you know, help me solve my pussy problem kind of thing. And I, I remember that I was kind of like, wait, this, okay. I had, I had the images of Rocky in my head. I had the images of what this, you know, should be and feel like, and it, and it didn't. And I, I was like, wait, <coughs> this is, okay, this is Gunner. And then the more that I looked at him, the more I was like, wait, this, I'm, I'm seeing something else <clears throat> in this gunner. And I kept retreating. He kept advancing until I couldn't back up any farther. <coughs> so I never told anyone what happened <clears throat> on that first night. And actually, after gunner left, <clears throat> after it was over, my father came in to come and collect me, as normally would happen. And I, I waited for my dad to, like, notice, notice me. Surely he could see what had just happened, see that I was different, see, see something. And instead, my dad was so focused on what was going on with my mom and everything, <clears throat> he actually unknowingly added insult to injury because <clears throat> he had come up with a plan for us to <clears throat> commit my mom to a psych ward. She had gotten so bad <clears throat> and we needed like a, an enforcer to trick her and tell her that he was there to help her, protect her from us. And so my dad decided that Gunner would be perfect for him. <clears throat> and he asked me, begged me to ask Gunner to help him commit <clears throat> our mom to the psych ward. So... At that point, any thought of telling my dad <clears throat> just immediately disappeared. Now, much later on, I <clears throat> I told her I tried to tell my brother. And I remember he responded with something like, so what, the guy diddled you? And immediately I dropped that conversation. <clears throat> I know neither meant anything, um, but silence, you know, silence is a choice. And sometimes it's the only choice um, at the time. You don't even realize what it is doing to you, um, but you do know, or you or you assume what telling will end up doing, and that would have been a disaster. So after a decade or more of therapy, and another decade of writing my memoir, the S word, I did put pen to paper and shared what happened um, with Gunner. And it's funny because somewhere inside me, ever since, and to this day, there still exists that shame, the blame, the thought that, you know, all along, hey, looking back, I kind of knew what was going on, right? I have to take some ownership here. The thought that 
it was, you know, my fault, at least in part. Um, now, I knew intellectually he was the adult, right? He's, he's 40 years old to my, I think at that time I was actually 14, um, and that it was wrong, right? But that didn't stop me from watching him flirt with others even afterward and get jealous and then wishing he would come back to me for more. Um, it was, it was just, it was kind of crazy. And, um, and the reason I'm talking about this now is I felt compelled to do this podcast because everything I have been feeling related to this experience in my life is everything that the two men who were sexually abused as young boys by Michael Jackson also felt and experienced in that Leaving Neverland documentary, I saw and heard their stories of how this larger-than-life figure manipulated and seduced and played on their uh, emotions to the point of making these children complicit and willing participants in adult sex acts. Um, I saw how the shame of it and the secret impacted their lives. Now, I've said it before, silence suffocates me, suffocates everybody. Um, my book, The S Word, a memoir about secrets, that's <clears throat> what I tackle because we kept everything secret. My mother's schizophrenia, even the, you know, Sicilian kind of code, the Cosa Nostra, um, and all of this that went on, um, the sexual awareness, uh, my mother thinking I was promiscuous when I wasn't, yet here, you know, there's this entire um, sexual abuse kind of happening, which it's very difficult for me to even use the terms, you know, sexual abuse um, because of, of, how, of how it came to play, right? Um, so anyway, I say this because madness, which madness to magic, this podcast... It comes in many forms. And I think what makes it so maddening and so shameful is that there is no cookie-cutter label or identifier, right? There is no one thing that's going on at any time. There is no you're all evil or you're all good to watch out for. There is no you know, specific look for the, the predator, um, <clears throat> be it sexual or otherwise. There is no specific look for someone who does have crazy voices going on in their head, right? <coughs> From the outside looking in, could look great. Um, look at the number of people recently um, who have committed suicide, right? Kate Spade, uh, Anthony Bourdain. I mean, from the outside looking in, Robin Williams, for God's sakes. You, you know, everything's humor and laughter and success and parties and, you know, Facebook posts and you just don't know. And back then, even more so because there wasn't, you know, Facebook or the internet or anything like that. So I, I realize all of this and yet constantly we're chastising ourselves. I know I did because we should know better, right? I, we chastise others, you know, why didn't, why didn't your mom protect you? You know, there were, there were questions about that in the, um, Leaving Neverland documentary, uh, about the moms, you know, uh, when my book came out, uh, people said, you know, gosh, you guys really, what were you doing? Some of the stuff was so stupid. And your dad, you know, he didn't protect you, et cetera. Well, that's great. We blame others um, when we haven't walked in their shoes. <clears throat> we assume we know what we would do 
um, if we did. And the truth is you don't. You don't know because you don't even realize it's going on while it's going on. This whole thing with Gunner, really, as it was going on, it, you know, what it really was, how it was going to impact me, <clears throat> that just, you know, didn't, it didn't register. It didn't register. I was, I was so confused over authority figure, father figure, friend, mentor, and then this whole other sexual side, um, and honestly, because I was, um, you know, I was a 13, 14 year old who was behaving more adult like, right? A job at that point when I should have even had it. And then all the responsibilities at home um, with immigrant parents and just with the, you know, my mom's crazy. I already was acting, behaving <clears throat> older. I, I had adult tendencies. So anyway, um, I guess I've said all this. <clears throat> One, I just, I felt moved to talk about it. Two, <clears throat> I realized from leaving Netherland that we can love and hate the very same people at the very same time. <clears throat> Likewise, <clears throat> we can be love and we can be hate at the very same time. We can't <clears throat> control the external forces that come our way. <clears throat> that is a given. Good, bad, ugly, we just can't. <clears throat> All we can do is learn to navigate the madness and to care for ourselves and be compassionate for ourselves and for others, right? Because we don't know what they're going through while it's happening. And what I find really helpful is sharing our stories with others in the hopes of, of sparking the little bit of magic that can be found, the lessons that can be learned, because it's there. I know it is. I've seen it with my own book. I now see it with Leaving Neverland. And I hope you all see it with this podcast too. So leave me a comment if you like, and, uh, and hope you are well. Thanks so much for listening to Madness to Magic and my podcast, I'm with Crazy, A Love Story. I believe we're all here for a purpose, and I know that this is part of mine. Please share this with anyone you think might benefit or might even have a story of their own to share. You also can visit me at madnesstomagic.com or check out more of my stories, including info on my book, The S Word, at paulinamalanawrites.com. I hope to hear from you and to join forces with what I consider a unique caregiver tribe as we all learn to embrace all of ourselves, to have compassion for others, and to come into our full power by the grace that is both madness and magic. Until we meet again, I'll leave you with one of my favorite mantras. Be bold, and mighty forces shall come to your aid. Thank you. Thank you.